morning. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. I think this is, um, it's a pleasure to be here today in Athens, and it's also a great pleasure to host this session on this um, fleet renewal landscape, ships and fuels of today's and tomorrow. So a really big topic and a lot of interlinking considerations with also with the panel before us, but I think very much a theme that's going to come across the whole, uh, the whole day. So over the past decade, the maritime industry has made significant strides in its decarbonization uh, journey. I mean, we mentioned earlier the introduction, going back all the way to the introduction of EEDI in 2013, and then we also talked about, like we did before in EEX Science, CII, but they've significantly increased the efficiency of both newly delivered but also existing ships since 2013. And the recently review, revised IMO greenhouse gas strategy has now set revised targets to further increase that efficiency and move the industry to net zero emissions by or close to 2050, as we all know. However, more can still be achieved through market-based measures, continued government support, in international alignment, and I think we said a lot in the previous panel as well, those two words really resonated in terms of collaboration and transparency. And we, to ensure that commercial viable will also at a global level, level playing field for the industry and for future fuel producers, enable them to make immediate and also medium, -term long, uh, medium to long-term investments. So for each sector, bulkers, tankers, containers, and so on, the decarbonization journey will look very different and be driven by different prin principles, priorities, and realities. But across that industry, fuel availability, which to opt for and when to commit, remain central topics for debate. With so much uncertainty, finance for these new vessels and the required criteria to secure investment remains opaque. What are the pitfalls of the industry in this new landscape, or what are the opportunities? And to help us unpack that and some of these areas, we're joined today by an exceptional panel, which I'd like to introduce now. So with us today, we've got Stelios Trulis, Director for Green Ship Energy Transition and Sustainability from Angelicus's group. Um, we have Aristides Pitas, Chairman and CEO of Euroseas and Eurodry. Thomas Lister, Chief Commercial Officer and Head of ESG Global Ship Lease, and Konstantinos Kapitanakis, Bunker Director, Starbuck. So welcome and thank you very much. Um, before we go into introducing ourselves, I'll start by um, asking Konstantinos and you as well, Aristides, if when you answer the question, if you can please introduce yourselves as well. Looking at the order book, it seems that the dry box sector is waiting and watching before committing to those future orders. Why is this? When are we likely to see a peak and what will they be the ultimate trigger? Aristides, please. Good morning, everybody. At least for me, it's, it's early morning, but anyway. Dry bulk, uh, yes, is uh, an area where we have not seen a lot of ordering up to now. Uh, I think it's gradually picking up, but, but why is that? I think, Alina, you said it all in, in your introduction, really. People no, don't know what type of ship to build. They don't know what the ship of the future will be. And when you place an order, you usually expect to build a ship that will last 20, 25 years. It used to be 25 years, I think now, 
you can hope for maximum 20 years and maybe even 15. But still, it's a long period of time and so many things will change uh, in shipping during these next 15 years. So it, it, it's a very difficult decision to make. And uh, most uh, owners, uh, people that uh, order ships, will be reluctant and are reluctant to place an order for a ship that they don't know uh, if it will be the optimum ship, they don't know how they will be able to employ it. Uh, and uh, for, for that reason, uh, I, I think we have, we, we see nothing really substantial being ordered today. We see ships lately uh, being built with uh, dual capacity to, to be able to burn normal fuel, but also methanol or some ammonia and all that stuff. This is a bet that not too many people want to take uh, since it's not covered by a charter. So I think this will continue for some time. Good morning from my side. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, uh, and I, I believe the main reason is the vast canvas of uncertainties which still exist. We, we received a glimpse of this uh, through Dr. Rahim's earlier presentation there are far too many uncertainties in the uh, uh, global uh, scheme of things. First of all, by way of uh, regulations, uh, enforcement of regulations, and all the aspects carrying the alternative fuels from inception, production, up to the tank of uh, the vessel. Uh, an owner wants to proceed to an investment and do as much as possible to de-risk it. Now, we're not there yet. I believe that as far as owners are concerned, as, as the first panel very clearly demonstrated, they have done all they can and much more. But this very hazy regulation environment, uh, this lack of enforcement, has created vast uncertainties which, understandably so, make owners hesitant to proceed, and especially on dry bulk, because it's very easy to get it wrong. Uh, we have to be, it's, it's quite simple really, uh, alternative fuels and new technologies need to be technically feasible, they need to be uh, environmentally sound, they need to be truly sustainable, they need to be really transportable, they need to be inexpensive, and you need to have a very clear cut of uh, line in terms of uh, LCA, the life cycle analysis. Now, none of these parameters is clear yet. So we are more or less on a betting stage right now. One time you think that uh, technological advances are such that make an investment of X fuel, I don't want to name specific fuels at this stage, uh, as advantageous. At another point you hear something else which negates your initial impression. So all this is clearly anti-productive in the sense that a ship owner needs a bit of certainty, a large scale of certainty, in order to proceed. Uh, the other part of your question when is, is uh, when we would see a peak in demand. I don't think there's going to be a specific time for a peak, but certainly not before we see the full implementation of the market-based measures for the IMO, when we see a truly global alignment of regulations. 
you need incentives and you need to be de-incentivized to stop using fossil fuels. What's going to be the penalty? When is going to be the penalty? 2027, we know that the market-based measures will be implemented. So we need to see which these are. Um, I believe that for this decade, current decade, despite the very uh, welcome uh, change in the IMO's GAG strategy, we are all trying to make heads or tails of all the regulations surrounding us. They are far too fragmented, and I would like first to see a global alignment before really considering that ship owners, especially on dry, will push the button to accelerate their investment. Thank you. Thanks, Constantinos. I think you touched on a lot of things that actually brings us into the, uh, really nicely into the next question, because let's start with the legislation aspects. So I'd like to ask Delios, please, if you can answer this. What would you expect from legislators and policymakers to do in order to assist ship owners navigate through the next decade? Well, well indeed, that's uh, the question. And thank you for inviting me uh, to, to Nico and the panel. It's the first time I do Capital Link, so I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, look, this is a, a transition. It means a gradual transition. It, you know, we don't want to go through shock therapy. That's very important because um, you, know, you don't want to go through a massive increase of shipping costs uh, very, very quickly. Um, the greenhouse gas uh, regulation needs to consider the actual well-to-wake. So earlier, the, um, you know, it, it, uh, the previous speaker provided us a very good uh, understanding about what the, their alternative fuels and what the MEPC has said. I think MEPC has done a great job in creating a vision. The, now we have a net zero for 2050, something that you know, we didn't have before. You know, um, you know, we have clear defined uh, paths on what your greenhouse gas emissions should be to that point. Um, these, are, these are important landmarks, but you know, we need um, 2027 to come as early as possible to provide the incentive, because that, that incentive uh, from the regulation, whether it's going to be a penalty, uh, and I'm not going to go into the carbon tax or not a carbon tax, you know, it's probably going to be a technical measure, you know, will provide the guidance for the industry and what to do. That requires, you know, uh, LCA guidelines, uh, very, very robust uh, gas footprinting. And what is also very important is important that, you know, we start realizing how important it is that, you know, we drive into one regulation, because I get the sense from a lot of the discussions that we've been having as a group that, you know, there is a distinct possibility we may not lead to something like that, which is going to be very unfortunate. You know, you really need like, you know, uh, you know one global system. Uh, so that, that, and that's what I think the legislators and the regulators, you know, owe to do uh, for the industry. And then the industry, very confidently, will respond. Thanks, Delos. Um, I'd like to ask Thomas, just from, the, from another perspective in parallel, we do see the liner side of the market making some really bold moves in methanol and other alternative fuels. Is this likely to, rep to be replicated across the sector or other sectors and other strategies? What about the sm those who have a smaller fleet? What are their options likely to be? Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for the question, um, Alina. Um, huh. 
I see one of our, our customers here in the audience, so I'll have to be very careful about what I, what I say and how I address this. But um, to put things in context, Global Ship Lease, which is the company for which I work, is an owner of container ships. We own a fleet of 68 container ships, ranging from 2,000 TU up to 10,000 TU. And we charter those container ships out to the large liner operators. And I provide that as context, really, for the answer to the question, because I think that the answer varies depending upon where you sit in the value chain. So if you're a, a large liner operator with a fleet of, say, 600 ships, and you control the destiny of those ships, in other words, you control where they're being deployed, you control the sourcing of fuel or energy for those ships, and you can limit the deployment of those ships to green corridors, say, then it is a far lower risk proposition for you to um, innovate in the context of new fuels, be that methanol or ammonia or hydrogen or nuclear or whatever it may be. We, we, we heard from Class NK earlier just the breadth of the palette of new fuels that are being potentially developed for the industry. However, if you're a tonnage provider um, to the space, such as we are, and such as uh, Aristides and, and his company is for, for container ships, the risk proposition is, is very, very different um, because it's a very big bet to have to place upon a fuel of the future if you don't know where your ship is going to be deployed by the liner operator. So I would say that we're probably, we're certainly not the dog, we're the tail that is being wagged by the dog or waiting to be wagged by the dog. And only once we have a clearer view as tonnage providers to the space, what will be the standard fuels of the future, will we be in a position to take a view a 30-year view, because container ships are 30-year assets, will we be in a position to take a 30-year view on where we should start investing? For the time being, on the other hand, um, we feel that the, the best approach is to focus upon enhancing the efficiency of our existing ships, which we're doing in cooperation with uh, our customers, with the charters themselves. Um, and so our, our near-term strategy sits on four pillars. The first is energy-saving retrofits to ships to make the ships more efficient. The second is data to, to ensure that the vessels are operated more efficiently. The third is making sure that our ships are ready to burn lower carbon biofuels. And the fourth, which feels a little bit more distant, to be, to be frank, is onboard carbon capture, which is an exciting uh, opportunity, but it's by no means straightforward in nature. So, Alina, sorry, a rather rambling answer to your question, but there we are. No, I think, uh, I think um, you're right. The challenging aspect is very much around the tonnage provider. But if we look at the overall marine ecosystem around the market, ship finance, across the value chain, I'd like to ask Delius now, what do you think that current status of that marine ecosystem is and what provides assurance for ship owners to make these investments and implement sustainable options? Well, thanks, Elena, for the question. The, um, I mean, look, if, if I look at our fleet recently, all the uh, orders that we've done, they're all uh, dual fuel capable. At this point in time, you know, we think that, uh, you know, LNG's uh, now solution, uh, you know, it has a lot of potential uh, through biomethane, which is very efficient, uh, and through synthetic methane. Now, uh, is it going to be the, you know, the last? We do not know, you know, 
you know, you got to have an open eye to that. You know, we're agnostic to we're agnostic to the fuel, uh, as long as the fuel is safe. Uh, and again, you know, we, we have to consider that shipping is just a small fragment of you know the global you know energy mix. Uh, you know, you're talking about uh, four million barrels a day when you know the whole oil mix is you know 100 million barrels a day. So we will end up. Uh, getting something that you know is going to be given from you know the entire industry. You know we need to see where you know we fit into that place. So again, this is where you know I think the, the incentives which will emanate from regulations will be important to see how they will be um, understood by uh, the organisations. Uh, at this point in time, though, you know regulation in Europe has been voted. You know you have fuel EU, so you know this this tells you that vessels that they can have an advantaged carbon intensity uh, into the fuel, they will, you know, they will have a very uh, significant advantage. Uh, once that becomes global, uh, that will also be, uh, you know, another, you know, important segment. You know, we just need to see when and in, in what sense. Thanks, uh, Stelios. <clears throat> so, given the current new building prices and premium needed to invest in today in a ship, which will be which will use alternative fuels as well as increased interest rates. I'd like to ask you, Stevens, what would you expect in terms of green shipping finance so as to consider such a decision as an appealing and safe investment? Are financiers go doing enough to support your decarbonization efforts? I think that uh, finance uh, is a little bit like uh, the owners, like all the stakeholders, uh, we all want this decarbonization process to continue. We are all in favor of it, but it, the economic sense isn't obvious yet. So the bankers, they all talk about, yes, I want to finance projects that uh, are, uh, have a green footprint, but uh, until, until now, even though they've been on the forefront of the discussions, you know, what do they offer for ships that uh, are a little bit more economic than other ships? Maybe five basis points, ten basis points. Uh, it, it, it's not a sufficient uh, trigger to, for, to, to help uh, people like us order or buy ships that are more economical. It's just a little, a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, or, of a cake, but nothing else. Uh, so the, they too have to see a project that makes sense. So if I need to order a ship today that costs $10 million more because it has the capacity to burn methanol or hydrogen or ammonia or whatever, uh, and I go to a bank to ask for financing, they will not provide it. Uh, for sure, they will say, I, I, I can't see that the project works, or they will provide a de minimis percentage of financing just to be in the deal. They are as well, as all of us, are really waiting to see the regulations develop and take effect in this market. Because if you don't have a regulation, then the markets do not work on the, uh, by themselves. Remember, you know, did we have any double-hull tankers before it became obligatory? No. You, you follow regulations. The markets follow regulations. And I admit and I know that it's a very difficult thing to, 
to make these decisions because nobody knows what is the correct solution. So I'm not blaming the regulators. I'm just saying that this is a very, very difficult problem and it has to be gradually regulated. And my only hope is that it will be regulated on a global uh, basis uh, based on the IMO work and we will all follow it. Because this whole process is extremely costly, right, uh, to decarbonize shipping and the world is extremely, extremely costly. Trillions need to be spent. They will not be spent unless there is regulation. Small steps are taken and they will continue to be taken until we have a more clear, uh, clear picture of where the world is going. Thanks, Aristides. <clears throat> Indeed, it is, uh, the commercial challenge is very real. Um, Thomas, can I ask, what about for lessers and your own financial backing? Is the story the same as we've just heard from Aristides? Uh, yes, I, I think it, it probably is, although I would re-emphasize that um, we are not focused upon a new building program at the moment. Um, so we're not having the, 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 the types of discussion that Aristides was, was just outlining um, with, with our financiers. I mean, as I hope I made clear earlier, we, we just don't think there's enough clarity yet um, as to which will become the fuels of the future for us to start placing chips upon the table. So I would say what we do have to present to our financiers for when refinancing existing ships is a clear, credible, and practical uh, decarbonization strategy and um, an ongoing sort of evidencing of the fact that we're putting that strategy into practice. So it's not just words, it's actually moving forward and being invested upon. And then I think as far as next generation ships are concerned, um, I would presume that financiers would be looking at, uh, at things the same way as us. In other words, they would look to see that um, there's far more clarity on the residual value risk of a ship that has been built today uh, when it comes off the, uh, the initial charter in due course. And so I think it's also a, a, a must to have very clear employment prospects and contracted cash flows on that ships to bring you down to a residual. So it's, I think, finding the right balance between where our customers, the liner operators, are willing to commit long-term uh, in order to allow us to manage the residual value risk. And once that's in place, I suspect that the financiers would also be able to get themselves comfortable with financing such a transaction. But as I say, for us, this is more theoretical than, uh, than, than real at the moment. Okay, I'd like please to go back to you because um, we've talked about regulation a lot and the potential of that regulation fragmenting um, regionally, let's say, the market. Um, that's certainly going to cause challenges. It's something that's, you know, to the extent that it's not today. But do you see any commercial opportunities as well? Well, yes. Uh, a comment on the fragmentation and the comment uh, on the EU ETS uh, that is a regional uh, legislation that's happening. Uh, what is the real effect of it, if it's enforced correctly, because there are many doubts if it will be able to, to be enforced to the worldwide shipping industry? 
uh, and to companies based uh, outside Europe. But assuming that it is enforced correctly, uh, it is a regulation uh, which doesn't give a, a, a specific advantage to any nation. Uh, and as we know, shipping is a global industry, so I look at it as one industry. But what is the effect it has? It makes it much more costly to transport goods into Europe. Uh, because essentially somebody has to pay, and we all know that at the end of the day, it's the customer. Maybe some intermediary pays uh, during the initial stages, but at the end of the day, the customer ends up paying it. So Europe is being extremely proactive uh, in, uh, in this uh, war against, uh, against uh, the greenhouse gases and is accepting to take the extra cost um, as a continent, I would say. But we all know how, how, how expensive this whole process is and we have to make sure that, you know, in, in promoting our ESG uh, agenda, E is extremely important, but uh, S is also very important. So if we make things too much more expensive for uh, all the people on the planet, that's not also too good. So we need the compromise. There is these difficulties uh, existing. Now to answer your question, because I diverted, uh, always change provides opportunities. But uh, they come with uh, additional risks. Uh, so personally, uh, I, I can't see the opportunity and I don't want to take the additional risk. So that's why uh, we, we ordered uh, new building vessels uh, two years ago, new building container ships. We're building nine of them. They are, all, all, all these ships are very economical ships compared to the existing ships in the past, we, we burn 35 to 40% less fuel than the previous generation of ships. But they are conventional ships. And we know that we don't have 25 years to, uh, to, to get the returns. Uh, we need to do that within the next 10, 15 years maximum. We need ships in the world because otherwise everything will become extremely, extremely expensive. But yes, there are opportunities. I haven't seen them. They are not so obvious to me and I'm not taking the additional risk. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the opportunity. I think, Thomas, if you can share with us a little bit. We say regularly in forums like this about uh, that decarbonization requires partnership, collaboration. Um, I know you announced back in September uh, a new collaboration recently with the UK and Bayes Business School. Can you talk to us through why partnerships like that are so vital? Um, certainly. I mean, I think, as everyone in this room knows, uh, things are moving at a breakneck pace. And um, we, at least, as, as tonnage providers, are not used to having to become specialists in different fuel types, specialists in carbon capture, specialists in decarbonization more broadly, on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, by and large, we're, we're quite small companies. So global ship lease, we're publicly traded, but we're a micro cap. We've got a market cap of roughly 700 million US. So we're 
small players in or, or small parts of a huge puzzle. So um, the only way you can tackle such enormous challenges, we think, is, is through partnership. Uh, I'll come to the, the, the partnership with, uh, with Bayes in a moment, but um, I think you know, there, are, there are partnerships or collaborations at three levels. The first is the sort of operational and commercial collaboration that we've talked about um, on, actually not on, on, on this panel so much, but more on previous panels I've heard it, where uh, owners and charterers have to collaborate far more actively than perhaps in the past in order to make um, ships run more efficiently, burn less fuel, decarbonize the collective footprint. Uh, there's strategic collaboration by way of fora such as the Getting to Zero Coalition, which tries to bring together experts from across the energy and supply chain to, to find ways collaboratively to decarbonize. And then there are the, the um, R&D, let's call it, and, and thought leadership. And this is where Bayes, or CAS, as, as, as it was formerly known, and I, I suspect we've got a, a fairly rich set of, uh, of, of alumni from, from CAS in the audience. And I think um, all of us in this room would probably agree that, that CAS and Bayes, as now is, is well established as a thought leader in shipping. And um, what we bring to the table as GSL is data from running our vessels and real life experience. What they bring is bright minds, expertise, innovation, and if we can marry the two together, uh, that strikes us as, as an interesting opportunity. And also from a selfish perspective, we very much like the idea of uh, plugging ourselves into an organization from which we can draw talent in due course. All of us need smart people um, working within our companies to, to solve very challenging issues at uh, a tremendous speed. So that, that, I guess, in a nutshell, is, is why we're engaging with Bayes. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so we've talked a lot about <clears throat> new builds and alternative fuels in new builds. But I'd like to go now to ask, Constantinos, if you can t share with us how are you enhancing the efficiency of your existing tonnage? Um, what are the key points that you consider to further enhance fleet sustainability goals during the next years? Actually, we're not inventing the wheel. None of us here is. What we are extremely focused on is to improve, significantly improve the efficiency of our ships, both from an operational and from a technical perspective, uh, using uh, a wide palette of uh, measures be that uh, energy saving devices, be that uh, monitoring and reporting foremost, as, uh, as my colleague Harris mentioned in the previous panel. Uh, slow steaming is a measure, and uh, participation in R&D projects, which will enable us to detect newer measures, uh, anti-foul uh, anti paintings, uh, frequent hull cleaning, all the basic tools that each company that has serious interest in decarbonizing uh, should be engaging in. And we do that uh, in a very extensive uh, mode. We have in-house teams uh, uh, performing uh, monitoring of our vessels remotely. We participate in uh, new building studies in order to see the feasibility of construction of these new ships. 
We have our own uh, system of uh, weather reporting and in-time arrival and uh, what have you in order to reduce as much as possible our, our carbon uh, footprint. Now, there are more modes and means to uh, adapt going forward. Gradually, we see the uptake of uh, biofuels, which is, of course, something important. We are already testing and are very much interested in uh, carbon storage capture. We think there is potential there, as was uh, previously mentioned, and we're focusing very much on that. But we also see that the R&D uh, aspect is moving quite quickly. It's what I said uh, in my initial statement. Uh, we need all these new technologies, efficiency measures, and new fuels to be technically feasible. And I don't think that's a problem. If there is will, there is a way in order to overcome the technical obstacles. The problem lies elsewhere. The problem lies with what Aristides mentioned, the outrageous cost of uh, new fuels and the technologies. And uh, the outrageous shortage of production. I mean, there is a, there's a quite a big elephant in the room, which is very low production of clean, green fuels. There's just not enough. So if we're talking about mezzanine measures, sure, there are many, but if we're really talking about getting to zero, it's very pleasant, as I said, that GHG strategy has changed by the IMO, then we need more production. As far as the next years are concerned, I'm sure there will be means to enhance the performance of the vessel through reducing emissions, uh, propulsion modifications, engine modifications, which will assist conventional ships to be able to reduce their carbon footprint. And because there are regulations on that front, yes, we have the CII, it's not the perfect tool, but it's not going to change, not at, at least not earlier than 2026. We have the EU ETS, ETS, then these measures will be implemented more rigorously. Uh, however, I have to stress once again that an owner needs clear-cut regulations and incentives. Aristides very rightly mentioned before, it does have to do whether it's right or wrong. If it's there, the regulation, we will oblige. Everyone will have to oblige. And I'm sure that technology will be by our side. As far as Stahlberg is concerned, we have a, a, a very substantial dry bulk uh, fleet. So we are focusing extremely on the R&T and the uh, efficiency uh, measures which will improve the performance of our vessels. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I, I do want to touch a point, the point of also, you're saying the upgrading and the energy efficiency of existing vessels, but the reality is there are 13,000 vessels that would need to, let's say, meet that IMO regulation coming. So where does retrofits, what do you think that role plays in terms of... Retrofits will play an important part. Listen, we have a, a, a tremendous number of ships. There will be a gradual phasing. Uh, nothing will be done overnight. So you will, one will see aged ships, smaller ships, being inappropriately suited for uh, retrofits. Retrofits carry, ex apart from extensive cost, retrofits need to make uh, commercial sense in the medium run. So if you have a small overaged ship, this will probably go out, uh, take advantage of the fossil fuel environment, which is here to stay for a number of years, in my opinion. However, newer ships, newer conventional ships, eco ships, 
which can be good candidates for retrofits, mainly by way of propulsion, maybe by way of installing some engine equipment which will assist, uh, again, the efficiency measures, yes. But the new fuels, I find it quite difficult, not only because of the space limitations that, are, that exist, but also due to the safety concerns that certain new fuels uh, carry with them. So I don't know what the percentage will be on the retrofits. Uh, it's going to be as small as each individual alternative fuel. Taken all together, they will increase the potentiality of uh, you know, green vessels. But in isolation, I think it carries challenges. It definitely has, its it has a big role to play, but it definitely has its challenges on two angles of it, the capacity and capability of the yards, right? So that's also another challenge that we will see. But I think that's all we've got for this session today. I think the future is still uncertain. It's certainly evident from the conversation that each sector has started a map out a plan and to ensure that continuation towards that journey of a compliant fleet that will meet the market demand and expectations. I'd like to thank, first of all, Capital Link for giving us the time today to discuss this, uh, the future fuels and their likely impact on the global fleet. But thank you also to our panel of speakers. So thank you, Constantinos. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Aristides. Thank you, Stelios, for a wonderful panel. Excellent contributions. Uh, and thank you all for the audience today for listening.